Well, we're going to start our show. I don't I didn't bring the music in because we did a new intro. Yeah. I don't know what to do with now there's no how do we know the show has really started? I don't know. I I usually punch in with something funny and then and then we get into it. Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us. A journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. I want to be so full of Christ that if a mosquito bites me, it flies away singing, There is power in the blood of Christ! That was beautiful. That was my overzealous uh, sermon guy. (laughs) (laughs) Overzealous sermon guy. Is that the new Simpsons character? Yes. Nice. Simpsons, give me a call. I'll do that voice for you whenever you need. (laughs) I'm really scared for this mosquito now that's that's full of the blood of Christ, man. It's about- saved. It took communion. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. I did that because of our author today uh, and how he wrote like a super zealous uh, sermon, sermon guy. <laughs> yeah, in his book. That's that's the connection I'm making here. That's why I went with that. It wasn't just because I needed to make that joke or anything i think that's why but (laughs) i mean it wouldn't be the start of an episode of between lewis and lovecraft if we didn't have some some outburst some crazy thing that tyler comes up with literally as we're listening to the intro you guys out there you think we prepare for this we don't hannah prepares for all the serious shit I show up and I go, I'm like, I'm like that cat on the bed, like chasing the little, the red dye, like, oh, oh, what do I do? What do I do? But that makes me in this metaphor, the person who's like aiming the laser. And I don't think that's accurate. Oh, I think that's accurate. You 100% aim the laser of your, of your outline. And I'm the one just going crazy on it. No, you're the one that makes the bed that I'm ruining as the cat. I'm not trying to make you spaz out. That's our shirt for the episode. It's a picture of you trying to make <laughs> make a bed and, and a little you, version of me. Your face like copy pasted onto a cat's yeah, body. Or which like, is going to be horrifying. Or like it, one of the CG cats from the new movie Cats. Oh, God. But with worse. my face. <laughs> and I'm just chasing a laser. God, if all of those like actors don't look good as CG cats, I, I don't would think look we awful. will either. Yeah, I think I'd best fit onto uh the big british guy's body what's his name i haven't seen is it the um the, dude who was also in beauty and the beast live action yes well uh, i didn't watch that one actually i don't know the james Cord- corden yes james i think corden? i think th- oh no different guy i was thinking uh, of but yes he is also british <laughs> <laughs> you know who's not british oh i herman do know melville. <laughs> herman melville but we can i so I started, I almost went into my NPR AM radio voice, (laughs) right? Because I needed to set the mood for this to be a boring ass episode. Guys, we do not like Melville. Well, okay. That's not true. I like Melville. I think he as a person is interesting. I uh, enjoyed learning about him as much as I could. Um, I will say the biography that I listened to, uh, 
was not the most comprehensive or best written. It's probably the first time I've ever read a biography and went, oh, this is not as good as some of the other ones that I've read. <laughs> um, and I don't even remember who wrote it, to be honest. It's literally called Herman Melville, super duper creative. Well, at least it's easy to find. Yeah. Um, and it's written by, sorry, everybody, I'm already stalling. And it's written by Elizabeth Hardwick. It's okay. She like really dives deep into some stuff, but it's kind of scattered. Like I didn't realize at one point she was talking about the book Redburn and his first trip mm. at the same time. I, it took me like a couple listens to figure that out. So it's a little scattered, uh, but we'll get into that later. I think my main thing with Melville is he had a fascinating life. Yeah. Tons of adventures. He sounds like the coolest dude ever. And then literally none of that translates onto the page in terms of feeling and excitement. Feeling and it's, you're right. Like a- he, as far as his emotions, what he went through and, and all of that doesn't. He uses all of his life experiences like. As to, a basis. Yeah, basically like Hemingway, but on steroids. Yeah. As a basis for his writing. But it's just like you would expect it to be exciting in a page turner. And yeah, it's you just would, not. With the stuff that he went through, and then it's like, oh, he wrote from his life. Wow, this is going to be exciting. And then you read it and you're like, I don't <laughs> care about the shape of a harpoon. Just give me a harpoon so I can put myself out of my misery. Talk about what it's like to stab the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so Tyler actually wrote a biography. Um, I cheated and used like uh, a long form PBS article, Britannica, a couple lectures from some professors and just cobbled together this thing. I can't keep going, Tyler. You left me. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry, Hannah. I had to go do something. Yeah. I had to We're, make our quality of life better. It worked. Yeah. Anyway, I already forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> so, yeah, we're just going to get into you it. You were listening to, or you were reading a PBS thing. I Yeah, I read like a selection of articles, basically, that were very long about Melville's life and then listened to a couple of lectures by professors. Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah, that that helped. Yeah. It, it was just hard to find a biography, and it sounds like even the one that you found wasn't a perfect biography. Yeah, uh, she tried really hard to make it interesting. You know, like, very... And I'm like, okay, I get it. You're trying to be a good writer, a good author, while you're talking about another writer. But just give me the facts, lady. And it shouldn't be that hard to make it interesting because cannibals and shit. (laughs) Like, come on. Just tell me what happened. Yep. Okay, so here's what happened. Here we go. Herman Melville. Born on August 1st, 1819 in New York City. Um, He was the third child out of eight total to his parents, who were Alan and Maria Gansevoort Melville. And the interesting thing that annoyed me at first was yeah. that they did not spell Melville with an E until later in his life. Really? So I was reading all of these articles, and I'm like, why are they spelling his name wrong? But the family's the, name the is family... M-E-L-V-I-L-L? Yes. No E. No E. What a bunch of stooges. I know. So confusing. <laughs> they must have been idiots. Um, 
Well, if they were, they were rich idiots, at least <laughs> early on. Um, so he had like a pretty privileged upbringing, uh, except for the part where he got scarlet fever because that does not see class when no. it strikes. No. So he got that at the age of seven and it permanently damaged his eyesight. Yeah. So poor Melville. And and just to be fair, his family was rich, but his father was also really smart. Yeah. He was a he was a not a merchant, but like a importer of yeah. French things. And so he spoke French. He was pretty well educated. His mom was well educated. She came from a very rich family who was like his grandpa on his mom's side. The How do you pronounce it? Ga- Gansfort. Gansfort. Those people. <laughs> uh, his grandpa was a uh, uh, colonel or some high-ranking officer in the Revolutionary War. Um, and so, like, they, he came from pr- some pretty good stock. And they let everybody know that, too. <laughs> like, they were an entitled company. Or not company. An entitled family. Family. Yeah. Yeah. So he grew up really well-educated, at least in his early life. And he liked to read a lot. Um, yeah. He read a lot. Despite his poor eyesight, uh, he really liked uh, mythology, anthropology, and history, mm-hmm. which sounds super freaking boring for a child, <laughs> but should not be surprising, I guess. Uh, he also really liked Shakespeare. Um, so I think all of that you can see later on in his his writing when he gets very flowery with language. Sure. Yeah. Um so his did, did you ever find out what his brother's name was? No, I have no idea what his siblings' names are. One of his brother's names, the one that like I think he was closest to, um, that helped him out in his first trip. Um, his brother's name was Gansevoort Melville. Oh, yes, right. I, I remember seeing that because I was just like, why did they drop his first name? But that was his first name. That was, was Gansevoort. His first name was Gansevoort. These people, like they were like obsessed with family, like lineages and stuff. So it was it was nuts. They would reuse the same names every three generations, and obviously, uh, the mom, um, Marissa, Maria, Maria, I think. Maria. She she was obsessed with being a Gansevoort to the point where she named her son Gansevoort. It'd be like my wife naming our our first son like our her la- former last name. That's insane. She's like, I can't let this I family let not go, name man. go. Yeah. It's crazy. I don't know. That was my Where'd they get name. Herman from, though? I don't know. I feel like that's not a family name. From the sea. From the sea. <laughs> that was my shanty voice. That's what I should have started this episode with. Not A like, nice shanty voice coming in did, from like, the, Irish Al- preacher. the cold Atlantic. <laughs> I wish there were recordings of Herman Melville's, Melville's voice so we could know if that's what he sounded 100%, like. 100% that's not how he sounded. That's how his character sounded. That's Ahab <laughs> right there. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. But is he not sort of Ahab? Oh, are we going to get philosophical? I don't, I don't know if we are, but we got to make it out of like his single Aren't digits we all first. Ahab. <laughs> so when he was about 11, his dad's import business collapsed. His dad went ba- bankrupt and a little bit insane. Yeah. And then by 1932, so at which point he would have been like 13 years old, his dad died. Yeah. Um, yeah, within two years, his dad lost everything. They had to move, and then his dad died. Yeah, which is a lot to go through when I, you're 10, yeah. basically. I was, before we were recording, I just I was just complaining about, like, my week, and <laughs> that sounds awful. Yeah, that's, I that's feel a bad lot of now. bad weeks. <laughs> so... 
it was a little bit after that time when I guess um, his Herman's branch of the family changed the spelling of their name and added the E. I'm not really sure like why they did that. If it was to distance themselves from hmm. his bankrupt, insane Ooh, I dead wonder if father. That is, yeah. uh, but that's when the spelling changed. He also ha- I just I, why one one letter if you're no. gonna change your last name change the whole damn thing he could have just become a Gansevoort yeah they could have just gone back to Gansevoort <sighs> and like why like oh if you had if you had been a Melville without an E I would have said oh I would have spit on you you low class dead dad bankrupt Swine. son of a bitch <laughs> but because of that E welcome to the good old tropics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, the Melvilles with an E are not really fooling anyone. No, not at all. Um, so yeah, so around this time, obviously his dad's dead. They have no money. <laughs> he and his siblings have to start working. Yeah, even though they're children. So yeah. He, so this part was weird to me. He started working at a bank. At like he was a clerk. Twelve. Yeah. Which seems wild to me. But like, did you see more about what specifically he was doing at the bank? No, was this his uncle's bank? I think um, I saw that he worked on his uncle's farm at one point. I don't know if his uncle or I a different uncle owned I, the bank. I don't know. He he has a lot of connections through uncles, and I don't I don't think they're all the same uncle. I think <laughs> these are large families, so I think he has a lot of uncles. I feel like it might have been his uncle's bank that he got uh, a job at, but I I can't be certain on that. I know for a fact when he went to. When he started at school, that was his uncle's school. When he started teaching? No. When he started, when he, because he taught before he went to high school. Yeah. I was going to bring like, that who's up. Who's letting a preteen? He's, he's freaking 14 years old and he's teaching. But I mean, again, we're, we're talking about a completely different time, right? We're talking when kids generally would start working. This is during the well right at the beginning of the american revolution not revolution um Civil industrial War? revolution oh, right like we've we're starting to see certain patterns being done and it's before unions it's before all kinds of you know actual laws for keeping people alive so children were working a lot so it's not uncommon and people were dying at the age of 30 like it's not uncommon that you start your life at fucking 12 years old it was insane back then so He's teaching before he goes to high school. Obviously, he's teaching what he knows, probably math, because that's what he was good at. And I think he was good at history also or something like that. He was so, definitely interested in yeah, that. Yeah, so. so I view it more as like being a tutor. Like, you, it, when, we're, when we were kids, I'm sure there were kids who excelled at school. And if they really applied themselves, they could have been paid by our parents to teach us stuff, you know, just to be our tutor. That's how I think it would have really worked. But nobody wanted to learn because everyone was too busy not dying. <laughs> That's a full-time job in the 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. So he's starting his life at 12, basically, yeah. uh, getting out there and working. Um, so obviously those were all his like preliminary jobs. The thing that he's really known for is life at sea. Right. And working on ships. So Which that started when he was around 20. Yeah. Think, so he took his first he took his first job as a cabin boy with a trade ship called the St. Lawrence in 1938. So he would have been like 19 or whatever. Okay. Um, and did a round trip to Liverpool. So he kind of did that thing where he goes on trips and then comes back and like works for a little bit and then goes out sure. again. So when he came back, he taught school again for a little bit, uh, <clears throat> tried to find work in New York City, 
didn't get anything, I guess, um, and then traveled on a steamboat on the Mississippi River. So he's like living this total vagabond life. Yeah. And and the trip to Liverpool is not something to skip over either because it was a big awakening moment for him because it's the first time he ever left America. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's his first trip to sea. And um, it's a city that his dad loved and would write all these things about. And so he was like trying to go on this basically this tour that his dad had set up for him before he died. And it was like, go check this place out. Go look at this place. Go see this. Liverpool is like his favorite place or something. And he gets there and he's like, this place fucking sucks. Like, my dad was so wrong about Liverpool. Of course, a lot could have changed. Like I said, this is the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Liverpool could have changed a lot <clears throat> between the time that his dad was a young man uh, adventuring the world. And he he had a different experience than what Herman did. Um but that was that was a big deal. Like he would write poetry for a while. Um, and then I think even in his first book, Redburn, he talks about what it's like to go see like he's imagined for so long what this place is like through his dad's eyes. And now he's seen it for the first time with his own eyes and he disagrees. So that's such a sad feeling. Right. It's like you built something up for your whole life yeah. and then you get there and it's not anything it's not. like what you expected. Yeah. Yeah. Low-key freaking out. (laughs) (laughs) His first existential crisis at 19 years old. Yeah, man. That's fine. So then, uh, did you see any other, like, um, smaller trips of consequence before he did the Akushnet? No, not really. I just know, like, before he left on his trip to Liverpool, his brother had, uh, had used the inheritance money from his dad dying to start a business. The business failed. Like, that's something really uh, that a a lot of people have talked about. Like, the Melvilles went through a lot of bankruptcy. They were just doomed to fail at any business they tried. But they were entrepreneurs. They were adventurers and stuff. So They um, kept trying. It was really sad, you know. And so his brother failed and then had a mental breakdown for, like, a full year. And it wasn't until he went on that trip that his brother came out of it to help him get money and get ready for the trip. And that kind of stuck out to me, like just having a brother who like is in pain and basically comatose in bed, but then you want to go do something and he, and that's what breaks him out of that. I don't know that I I don't, I don't necessarily want to say that's inspirational to me or anything. I just, that resonates with me. Yeah. It's like a brotherly or just sibling bond. Yeah. Like that love to, to be able to overcome that mental illness and to help your your brother out and like i don't know it was just it was just it stuck with me when i was listening to it it was really cool do you think the fact that the melville men seem to have such a habit of like bankruptcy and then you know deep depression do you think that's reflective of like the times and the stress that men were under to provide or do you think it's indicative of like a mental illness in the family both. both i think it's both um i think you were and especially at that time you were expected to Either work for the man and keep your family good or strike out on your own and make it rich, especially when you come from a rich family, right? And and are married to a woman from a rich right, family. That's yeah, exactly. probably stressful. It, it, it probably was. But you even see it with Lovecraft, right? His dad had a lot of mental illness and it came, and he came from basically the same era, you know, Isn't a little bit later. Isn't that the syphilis, though? <clears throat> yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
let's not uh, make assumptions about the Melville men's um, I'm not STDs. saying Melville slept around and got syphilis. I'm just saying I think it's a product of the time. Of the times. I think mental breakdowns were a much more dangerous thing at that time. Yeah, because they had all of these extra challenges that yeah. we don't have today, plus no help. No help, anything. no meds, no chill, like... You, you have a bad day and, and all you're allowed to do is go drink more alcohol, which does not help mental illness. It makes it so much worse. And was probably not of a safe quality back then. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, you know, his his dad and his brother's uh, issues are, are kind of a prequel to things that we'll see with Melville yeah. later on. Um, but in January of 1841, so now he's like, in his early 20s, um, he made what would end up being a hugely consequential decision to become a crew member on the American whaler, the Akushnet. And I listened to somebody pronounce that, so I know it's... you weren't sure about it? I wasn't sure about it. I'm like, I don't know. It's Akushnet, according to some professor. <laughs> so on this trip, it took the Cape Horn route, which means it sailed all the way south of the tip of South America and then to the Pacific Ocean. And then the Marquesas Islands, uh, which are just somewhere between the Americas and like Asia and Australia, basically. Oh, in that, really? In that big vast like going, thing called going, the Pacific Ocean. Going kind of to southeast. Yes. Or south, southwest from us, I guess. Southwest from us, yeah. So kind of going underneath Hawaii. Yeah, just these like tiny islands out yeah. there. Um, so in the summer of 1842, after 18 months on board, he and a friend jumped ship because it had just been like a miserable experience. They had bad conditions on board. Yeah. Uh, the ship's officers were assholes. Yeah, uh, and they had there's it. <laughs> there's something to be said about the lifestyle of a li- of a soldier back then, or sol- a sailor back then. You were you could get fucked up. Well, you're stuck on a tiny like moving object yeah. at sea for years at a time. Basically, a small village with just dudes. Yeah, just dudes, and there's a hierarchy, and if you don't. You sign a contract that basically says, if I break this, you're allowed to kill me. Right? That's and a lot and of if stress. you if you break that in any way, they will do whatever they want to you. So if they're like, Hey, that other sailor's dead, go, you know, cut him up, we're gonna eat him. You have to do that. And if you're like, No, I don't wanna do that, they're like, Great, well we're gonna kill you now and we're gonna eat you. So how do you feel about that? Like that's insane. <laughs> I could not work under that sort of condition. I yeah, I don't know why anybody would do that. Just because those ships were known for being rife with abuse, yeah, and also just the shitty conditions of being on a boat in the 1800s, yeah, which seems terrible. So yeah, he he and one of his other crewmates, they were over it, so they jumped ship, um, and they like got on this island called Nuku Hiva and nice. lived well there with the friendly. In quotes, cannibals <laughs> for about a month, <laughs> which I I wish I had read like his second and third books, I think, are the ones that talk about life with cannibals, because I think that would be so interesting to know about because mm-hmm. he just had like this whole experience living with them, um, which would go on to inform his writing. And also, like, I think Melville was the type of person who would hang out with anyone. Yeah, he loved every. He yeah. loved to hang out with people. I think that that's probably one of the things that I love about him the absolute most is that he accepted everyone and he just wanted to chill with everybody, even cannibals. He's like that that bro that's just every you like. You're like God. I don't want to like him, 
but I do. I don't have a beef with him. He seems fine. No, no, like <laughs> nowadays, like there's that bro at yeah. parties or something. You're like, I don't want to like you, but you're so chill. Like you're so I just, chill. What the fuck? Man? Doesn't judge anybody. <laughs> so he's there. Um, after about a month, he then joins the crew of an Australian whaler called the Lucy Ann. Um, and this was another ship where it was apparently really badly managed. The captain was sick. The first mate was a drunk. There was no second mate at all. Right. All the officers ended up deserting at some point. Um, uh, real quick, just to make sure people don't freak out if they're super fans and they already know. Redburn, I, I said, was his first book. That's not his first book. Yeah, I think Typey was. Typey was his first. And that one had a lot to do with jumping ship and hanging out on islands. And then I think the next one as well, the Omu. Um, um Omahu? Whatever. We'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, I think that one was a lot more of it. So, Redburn fans, don't... Don't freak don't out. Don't freak out, I know guys. that I made a mistake. I'm trying to correct it. So, yeah. So, on the Australian ship, um, when it got near right. Tahiti in eight, in September of 1842, he and several other sail, sailors mutinied and then were imprisoned on land. But apparently, however they imprisoned them was not very good. Because he escaped by oh. <laughs> basically just walking away. Yeah. Like, he was just like, eh, I'm out of here. Now, listen, mate, you're going to stay right here, all <laughs> yeah, right? That's Don't what I'm move. picturing. <laughs> and Melville, he Sorry sits for there. my terrible Australian accent. It's fine. Oh, a lot of our listeners are Australian. I just I just saw this. The stats? Hi, Australians. Hi, Australians. I'm sorry I offended you with my voice. <laughs> it was a, It's not your worst accent. <laughs> What's my worst accent? The ones that, like, are un... Like, you can't tell what... <laughs> language they're supposed to be <laughs> all right so yeah so uh he he walks away from whatever like jail he's in made of driftwood um and then he sailed on an american whaler again the charles and henry i love all these ship names they're, they're so, so good nice. one of so in my in my books i'm writing i at one point introduce uh a ship and i had so much fun researching like ship names and so I, I went, I decided on a ship name, and the more I thought about it, the more I fell in love with it. And I'm like, I'm just going to make this whole book about this ship, because it's so cool. The ship is a character. <laughs> yeah, man. So um, on the Charles and Henry, this was the ship and the crew that Melville had the most respect for. Um, but unfortunately, he was only hired for the length of the passage, not the full voyage. So he ended up in Hawaii instead of like continuing on for several more months uh-huh. um so he was in hawaii in april of 1843 um and he worked as a pin setter in a bowling alley so he's the guy who like you know seriously when he, i didn't see that at yeah. all what so he's the guy when you bowl and knock down the pins like yeah, he has run to run out. down there and put them back up which i'm just like that is so machines adorable. are taking her jabs yeah right you guys have put people like herman melville out of business good job <laughs> way to go yeah, so that's a, I mean, that seems like a fun thing to be doing in Hawaii for a little while. I feel like, ooh, that was a fun noise. Um, I feel like that is a good life. Like, this, op- it's probably open air bowling or something. It's probably not like a bowling, like, enclosed like we have it now, because it's Hawaii. Why would you have it closed off? Just hanging out on the beach, throwing a ball at some pins. Or a coconut. Or coconuts. Wow, that's, that's a, yeah, stereotypical, <laughs> I guess. I would bowl with a coconut. Um, But, you know, the Hawaiian life was not for him. He got homesick after a while. And so he signed on with uh, the U.S. Navy. Is it frigate? Frigate. And I don't. Is that a special kind of ship? My Navy knowledge. It's like a. 
I'm I don't have super navy knowledge. I just from what I know, which is not a lot, I believe it's just a larger ship. Why can't they just say a big ass ship? <laughs> because that doesn't sound as cool as a frigate. Okay, so he's on the frigate United States. <laughs> Sir, the United States big ass ship is coming <laughs> our way. Actually, that does that sound sounds important. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Listen up, generals. <laughs> So he spent 14 months there, um, and he witnessed 163 floggings, which uh, I think the word flogging, most people don't give it enough credence, but apparently it's actually really freaking bad and left people scarred for life. Like Literally. Phys- literally physically scarred. Yes. It is not It is not something that you want. Lashings, floggings, these things are bad. Like, a whip can cut you hard, deep. And you get infected and you're out at sea and you ha- maybe already have scurvy or, you know, like some weird disease that people haven't even given a name to because it's born from the sea. But like, it's not, it's not good. It, I, okay. I know we're already starting early, but Ty Ty the Bible guy's <laughs> coming out. And like, the reason why, like back in 2005, the movie The Passion of the Christ came out and it was such a big deal it's because it's the first time that, like, someone put that much effort into showing some severe damage to Jesus. He wasn't just some white German-looking guy who kind of got beat up a little bit. Like, they beat the shit out of him. And it's because they flogged him. And sometimes they use some special tools. Like, um, the, uh, uh, flip. There, there's the special one that has, like, pieces of glass tied yeah. into the ropes so when they they hit you, it sticks it in, and then they rip your skin off. That's what a flogging can be. Like it's not it's not good. And yeah. I, and I think that there's there's a lot that he witnessed here, and and I'll get into it later with Moby Dick. That's really interesting. That like he observed this, and then he started kind of putting together what the worst case scenario could be for for people at sea. I think it's also really interesting that, like, this is one of his worst experiences on a ship, and it's a U.S. government ship, yeah. not one of the, like, lawless I wasn't. I wasn't ships. lying when I said you sign over your life. Yeah. Like, especially with the U.S. military. Like, at that time, especially, this is, this is 1947. 18. We're, er, sorry, yes, 1847. <laughs> we're getting around the Civil War. Mm-hmm. People are, are very much, like, militarized at this point. We have been fighting Spanish, French. Uh, the uh, English, we're fighting everybody. We're taking over Hawaii, which that's a bunch of bullshit. We're like going down to Panama and doing a whole bunch of shit down there. We're, we are a militarized people at that point. And so to break any sort of regiment was a, a cardinal sin yeah. at, that, at that point. So uh, needless to say, he really did not like this experience. Uh, and he wound up using a lot of it in one of his later books, White Jacket, which criticized the use of flogging and the treatment of men in general in the U.S. Navy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, shitty experience, but got a lot of material for, for that book later on. Yeah. Um, he was finally discharged from the ship in Boston in October 1844. And as far as I saw, this was the last of his major like trips to sea. He he would later like do some other sailing under the leadership of one of his younger brothers, uh, his cousin was also a major player in maritime circles at this time. So he still like had a sea connection, but I think this was the last like big trip that yeah. he did. Well, I mean, <clears throat> it was him coming home. Yeah. Right. You know, 
And so he was homesick. He realized, oh, I like New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the Northeast. He's a Northeasterner, not, you know, on, you can only travel for so long, I yeah, feel like. I think so. Um. So, yeah, so he comes back. And I got to admit, I don't know that much about his marriage. Um, oh, is this where we're at now? Yeah, we're oh, getting here to, we go. Because 1847, um, he married Elizabeth or Lizzie Napshaw. Um, they got engaged after knowing each other for only about three months. And as far as I could tell, it seemed more like one of those things where he really liked her family and yep. especially her dad yep. than actually liked her. So the the Melvilles, Gansevoorts, and Shaws were a very incestuous uh, group of people. And I don't mean that like brother sister. In sisters. the literal sense. Just in the like uh, it's weird. It's called brother sister. <laughs> in the weird like New England high society yeah, way. Yeah, like these three families or really one big clan would constantly, um, they just wanted to produce the best heirs and they wanted to stay within, you know, their families. And um, I, I don't know if it was Herman and Lizzie, but there was within Herman's generation, there was a marriage that really sealed the deal between these three families. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I know, I know that Herman married her because it was the thing to do. Yeah. And her dad was like a judge, very high yeah. up. Um, and I saw also that like Melville kind of considered her dad a de facto father figure, Sure, which I mean, that's kind of hard. <laughs> like, yeah, he's, been living without his dad for you know close to 20 years at this point yeah i mean he went off to go find himself and then to come back and i mean if if i, I think that people can find father figures anywhere anyway. that's, i mean that's literature <laughs> you see that everywhere but um i think that the families are close enough if, if you're able to find someone who if he was able to find someone who could really help him through a lot of stuff then that's great. You and know? again, this is the 1800s, so, and so of marriage course, is more of a duty for everyone. Yeah, yeah like, what oh, you're like a son to me, so marry my daughter. <laughs> Poor Lizzie. Yeah, she's just property at that point. <laughs> so in 1850, they actually bought property in the oh. form of a farm in Massachusetts. Um, and it just so happened that Nathaniel Hawthorne, the author of The Scarlet Letter, lived like just next door. yonder. Yeah, yeah. like they were the neighbors. <laughs> um as far as I saw, they hadn't met yet. Like, um, Melville wrote some review of one of Hawthorne's works or something um, that was just like a glowing review. Yeah, and he, then they became friends after that. He loved her uh, Hawthorne's work and writing. Um, Did and he love it too much? <laughs> are we getting into that now? I, I right now. I mean, they're there together yeah. in Massachusetts, yeah. and we have to ask. We don't have to, but we're going to ask. We're going to. Were they lovers, too? Now, this might be coming out of Left Park for a lot of people um, because you don't care about Melvin, Herman Melville that much. But <laughs> um, there's a lot of contention out there about his sexuality. And, of course, this is between Lewis and Lovecraft, guys. <laughs> we got to get into that sexuality. Like, right before we started this episode, I came in and I said something to Tyler. I'm like, why are all of these, like old authors accused of being gay yeah hundreds of years after their <laughs> I, deaths <laughs> i'm here's my spiel all right look y- you said it too right 
Lovecraft was probably gay. Lovecraft was definitely gay. I am fully on board with that one. M.R. James hated women. I don't necessarily think that that's evidence for gayness, right? For homosexuality or even bisexuality. Um, what was the other one? Um, well, Hemingway. Hemingway. Which we, eh. we went into thinking, oh, he might be gay because he's got some gender role swapping things that he does with his wives. But, you but know, end of we the can't day, judge his kinks. End of the day, he I don't think he was because he didn't. He never. There's no evidence that he ever wanted those sort of relationships with men. Right. He just had some weird fantasies with women. Right. So I think that he had some weird fetishes. That doesn't mean he's gay. We're talking about 150 years ago. Right. This is a completely different time. This is a time when whaling, killing whales was the main source of energy and food for a lot of people on the East Coast. Now. We have TV shows about people who are anti-whaling because we're so not for that, right? Um, this is a time when women were property. This is a time when, like, it just people could be worked to death, literally. Your time frame for living your life was 12 years old to 33, hopefully. If you're 40, you're an old man. This is a completely different America. This is a different time. It's a different world. So it's hard for me to sit down and listen because um, Elizabeth went into it hard on her on her book. She was like, she's like, he's gay. 100% he's gay. And she had all this evidence. And she would grab quotes from his books. And then, you know, the Hawthorne thing. And this is just them being neighbors is just the beginning. After Hawthorne dies, Melville spends so much time with Hawthorne's family. It's almost like a bereavement of a widow it's scary so she's like he's gay and and i'm like i get where you're coming from but i also just think people were different i think people had different forms of relationships and i i can't just sit here in 2020 as a white straight male going this is what you are now <laughs> herman melville it's hard for me and the more that we get into authors that have these weird questions, the harder it is for me to just go, oh, he's gay. Oh, he's gay. Oh, she had a lesbian relationship. Oh, she's obsessed with sex. Like, I just, I can't, I can't always do it. But there's a lot of evidence. There is. So I actually, since I didn't read a biography, I was reading like these longer articles. None of the longer articles I read mentioned it. So I didn't even know about the gay question until like... <laughs> three days ago basically when I was looking up more about his friendship with Hawthorne and the top articles were all like ooh lovers and I'm like right. what is happening here <laughs> so one of the ones uh, that I read was by Jordan A. Stein who I think is like a um, oh god he's a professor um, I can't remember which college though uh, he wrote a piece in the LA book review called History's Dick Jokes on Melville and Hawthorne. So he uses like Melville's writing and particularly letters to Hawthorne to try to make this case for like, yeah, maybe he was into him. Yeah. And so the first um, review that Hawthorne wrote of, or that Melville wrote of Hawthorne's work had gems such as, Already I feel that this Hawthorne has dropped Germanist seeds into my soul. <laughs> and then later he goes, 
uh, Hawthorne expands and deepens down the more I contemplate him and further and further shoots his strong New England roots into the hot soil of my southern soul. Yeah, man. Yeah. Why? I, I get it. Like, I get that the writing is... His writing is very... Here's here's the at the very least, his writing is very homoerotic. Okay? <laughs> By modern standards, yes. I don't know if this was like a normal like do you talk about dudes dropping their seed <laughs> into your soul in the eighteen hundreds? I mean, I say it all the time. All when I, I know, meet I someone, try to tell him not when to When I meet someone, I'm like, yo, that dude can drop seed in me any day. <laughs> yo, that guy right there, that's a seed dropper for me. The hot soil <laughs> of my southern soul. But you know, and we don't know what like he could he could be writing this, and then like we we have him here at the table, like, yo, Herman, this is super gay. He's like, no, it's not. Like I'm saying, like he and I connected, like, and he could have reasons. Of course, we'd be like, oh, okay, Herman, whatever. Yeah, super childish about it. Um, but there's it, it goes into his writing as well. Yeah, like, like- Moby Dick has scenes. Where him and Quake, 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 son of a bitch, Quake, 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 Quake. I never actually had to say it out loud. So I, I, I listened to some I chapters read, with him. I read it and go, Q guy, Q. <laughs> Mr. Yeah, just, Q, just Q, Mr. Q. Um, him and 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 uh, Ishmael are just hanging out in bed, yeah, together, smoking pipes and talking, and he's like. There's never any better quality of time than spending time in bed, dropping trowel with another dude, just talking throughout the night. And then and then Queequeg embraced me, and then I turned over, and we slept better than we've ever slept before. And I'm like, um, <laughs> what? And to be very clear, there's nothing wrong with it. If that's what's going on. But it also I, seems like wild for the 1850s. One, nothing wrong with it if he's gay. I don't mind that. Two, nothing wrong with it if he's not gay. If it's two best friends just sharing a bed, smoking together, done. Which is cool. fine, but we also have to acknowledge that that's not a societal norm even now. Right. Like, it, I feel like girls have it easier. Like, yeah, I can totally, like, sleep in the same bed as a friend if I'm traveling. But I think if guys tried to do that that like i don't think bro code would let you there, sleep in the same bed like, as your friend in high school me and my best friend nick we would we would watch the office and you know, like post up in his bed and we're just sitting there watching the office and then it's like two o'clock we both fall asleep we're not cuddling each other they're fucking cuddling in moby dick they straight up cuddle with each other that's not the same as me falling asleep while watching a funny show or playing video games that's different. <laughs> I I demand to like bring someone from the 1800s back from the dead and like have them sit here so we can ask them if this is normal. We need to bring him back specifically. Yeah. Well, I I don't know. He might be biased, so we got to find oh, a neutral sure. third yeah. party. Yeah. So so yeah. So most of the evidence that uh, it sounds like your biographer used, and also Stein, the guy who was writing the article that I read, mm-hmm. uh, most of that evidence is taken from Melville's letters to Hawthorne and his own writing. Um, but it. It's a little more complicated because almost none of Hawthorne's letters back to Melville exist anymore. Right. So we don't know if, even if we assume that, yeah, Melville had a crush on Hawthorne or whatever, we have no idea. We don't no know if idea. it was reciprocated yeah. at all. We don't know if, like, 
Hawthorne was writing back to him like, bro, stop sending me weird letters. Or if <laughs> Hawthorne was like, yep, I feel the same way about you. Yeah. We have no idea. Uh, Yeah. I might be confusing something else. I'm not going to bring it up because I I might be super wrong. So we'll move on. Okay. And also both were married to women and lived what outwardly seemed like straight lives. So Sure. And I yeah, the only problem I would see in that if they're married, uh, they'd be cheating on their wives if they were together. Yeah. That's the only problem I see with it. Like there's, there's problem, like people have a lot of problems with homosexuality, especially in the culture that I've come from. Um, but there's, there's evidence to show that there's, that it doesn't exist in the Bible. Like people have interpreted it to. And so like, that's where I can come from and be like, mm. the problem would come from, you know, adulterers and, and cheaters. <laughs> like, like if, if you're that way, just be that way, you know? And I mean, it, it would be a divorce would be a sin also. So they're kind of stuck, but I don't know, man. It's it's a tough predicament. It is a tough Culture makes some some stupid lo- guidelines for people sometimes. I just want them all to be happy. Just be happy. <laughs> so um, I guess we'll get into it, some of his work next. Um, so at this point, he'd already written some things. Um, much of his work, as we alluded to, relied on his travels. Um, yeah, 48 minutes in and we're just I know. now getting to his books. Well, we kind of <laughs> talked about like typey a little bit. So um, at least in the first few years of his career, he wrote a lot really fast, mm-hmm. which I thought was yeah. interesting. Um, like he... I think he wrote like three books in one year at one point. So his first one that came out was Typey in 1846, and that was based largely on his life with cannibals. Yeah. It was initially rejected in the U.S. because publishers thought it was there was fake. no way it was true. Yeah. So somehow he got it accepted in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that one did pretty well once it came out. Yeah. And then he followed it with Omu. So do you know the story behind Typey after it came out in London? No. What happened afterwards? So, okay. So uh, Typey is, follows a main character, the protagonist, and his buddy along the way, right? And then at one point they get separated in the story. And so everybody's like, this is crazy. It's not real. So in real life, he writes the story. It gets published in London. And the other guy from that story who's a real person is like, yo, yo. <laughs> I'm alive and real, and I can attest that this is real shit. So then he has to write like a letter at the for the be, for the beginning of the book to be like, "Look, I'm the other guy. I'm real, and I lived, and this is real." So then people started being like, "Oh, okay, some credibility." That's wild. So is it his friend then who uh, who jumped ship with him and lived on the island with the cannibals? No, I I don't I don't honestly remember which one went which way i just know that they got separated and after he wrote the book he's like his friend was like that's me that's like such a cool story right (laughs) that's adorable (laughs) so he follows it with omu which was based on his experiences in tahiti um and yeah so both these first two novels did pretty well and actually got him like some respect in the writing community sure um and then things just didn't go as well after that. So he wrote three more books between 1849 and 1850. One of them, and I'm spacing on the name, but Melville himself characterized as a flop that was basically a chartless voyage Redburn. when he was writing it. That's Redburn? Yeah. Oh, sorry, Redburn. Yeah. He didn't think very highly of his own no, work in that one. That was, I if if I remember correctly, that was actually the first one he wrote. Right. Not the first one that was published. I think he's been he'd been writing that one. And um, I think people said 
he said, I only wrote it for some tobacco. Like he was, he was writing it to get paid. He was writing it just to get something out of it. And I think we see that. I mean, that's probably part of the reason he writes three books basically in one year. Yeah, He's like, oh, I can make some money doing this and I'm going to start doing that. Yeah. So Redburn not, didn't do so great. The other two small success, if you can even say that much. Um, And then Moby Dick, the the magnum opus in 1851. So this is a book that's on like high school reading lists mm-hmm. all around the country. Mm-hmm. At the time, nobody liked it. Only a few critics were like, "Oh yeah, this is genius," right. and everybody else was like, "No, this, nobody this, wants to read this garbage." Yeah. Nobody Tell us about it. people jumping ship and living with cannibals. That's what we want. Yeah. That's what you're good at, Herman. Come on, give us what we want. And he's like, "No, I, I've written that already. I um, want to write something else." I'm gonna give you 700 pages of tiny type on of, of what harpoons are made out of and how they've changed and what we're going to do with them and how to do everything. But that was exactly his point in writing it is he, again, you have to look at where, what did he like? He liked anthropology. He liked history. And so he wrote a story that was both biblically symbolic because that was his religion. And it was a, it was a timestamp, you know, you read this book and there, you cannot take this book and make a modern retelling of it. No, this is a book of the time like you can take pride and prejudice and you can change it and become and make it modern right because basically it's a love story between people who are pride prideful and you know prejudice and that transcends time and we can do that at any point this book is 100 1850 it is 1850 and it's everything around 1850 in you know the the sailing world Yes. Because it takes everything about whaling and puts it into the book. It is it has become more of a textbook for understanding that time period than almost anything else at this point. And I think that's probably why it's more respected now, because we see it as like a historical artifact, basically. But it's also super freaking boring. So uh, just a quick synopsis. So all of you listeners don't feel like you have to read it. Uh, real quick, you did you listen to the whole thing? Your no, whole thing? I listened to like five chapters spaced out throughout the book, and then read a synopsis so I could. So tie how them long together. was your book? Uh, the audiobook would have been like twenty five hours, I think. Which the standard is like thirty hours for it, right? The standard book is thirty is hours. It, thir- it might have been thirty then. Yeah, and I got the abridged version, and it was three hours. I don't even know how you. And even that, I was, there were times where I'm like, okay, let's move on. Yes. So, lightning round so you guys don't have to read it. The narrator is Ishmael. Starts with that iconic line, call me Ishmael. Do you understand why that's iconic? No. I know you want to move on, but we can can play in this realm a little bit. Yeah, why is that iconic? Okay, so Ishmael is a figure from the Bible, or, and also, uh, the Quran and the Torah, uh, so o- Old Testament stuff, right? And basically, Abraham, the father of all Abrahamic a- Abrahamic uh, religions, Christianity, uh, Judaism, um, Islam. He, his wife Sarah, can't give birth, uh, so Sarah convinces him, like, "Hey, I'm never going to give you a son. So why don't you fuck my handmaid?" And give me a son, right? And uh, so 
he goes and does it with Hadgar, Had Hagar, Hagar, and uh, and they produce a son named Ishmael. Um, so at this point, Ishmael is in line to become the inheritor of everything that Abraham has, including the covenant with God to go forth and produce a people of God. And, um, and so Hagar's all like, Sarah, look at me. I'm better than you because I produce a son. You're just married to him. Right. And so Sarah's like, all right, fuck this chick praise to God. And God's like, all right, here's a baby. So, so now Sarah produces a son. Uh, in the Bible, wasn't Sarah like 90 years old? Supposedly when this is happening, like super duper old, um, flipping flip hole. I know his name. I it's like once I get put on the spot, I start to second guess all of my Old Testament understanding. Are you even Ty Ty the Bible guy? I don't know anymore. <laughs> ah! Isaac, thank you, Isaac. Okay, because Ishmael that, and it, Isaac it's, are good names. It's, I, it's I, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Um, and Jacob becomes uh, Israel, which is to struggle with God. But see, so I know. This <laughs> <thing>. Um, <laughs> so she gives birth to Isaac. So now. Ishmael and Hagar are like, are not needed at all, right? So they send them off into into the desert, and it's through Ishmael's descendants that we get the um, the Islamic people. So that's where that that whole religion is based off of, um, is through the the Arab people. So um, to start the story, to start your entire book with saying "Call me Ishmael," is to basically say. I'm unwanted. I was sent off. I am an outcast. Like in one sentence, you produce all that emotion of you you don't even have to say it. He doesn't follow it up with call me Ishmael because I was outcast because I was forgotten because nobody cared for me because nothing in my life is working out. Right. He just says, call me Ishmael. I'm going to go sailing now. And people knew people got it. (laughs) So that's that's why it's important. That's why it's so iconic because it is a statement without making any statement. Which is ironic for Melville since he likes to make statements and then follow it up with five pages of explaining that same but statement. But again, this is be, Moby Dick is such an interesting book because he interplays two different styles of writing. He he does the textbook stuff where he's like, this is a harpoon. This is how a harpoon works. I'm going to spend the next chapter explaining a harpoon and where it came from and how it's designed, right? And we're like, we don't fucking care. But then he has he has the other, this symbolic writing that he throws in there and he doesn't explain it. He doesn't belittle the reader by explaining the the whole thing of like, the Ishmael is saved by a coffin that was created for his best friend who cuddled him at the beginning and cradled him and ha- gave him the best night of his life. That was, that's what he says for sleeping. And now his friend's coffin saves him and carries him to safety. Who is Rachel? Rachel is another biblical name. Rachel is another person within the Abrahamic line, Ab- Abrahamic line of people. Like he doesn't explain it. He just puts it in. It's so weird. That's why we now read it and go, holy shit, he's doing like two or three different styles of writing all at once. Commit to one, man. (laughs) Commit. So we're going to get to the coffin bit. So the plot is 
Ishmael, the young man who wants to lift his spirits by hitting the high seas for an adventure. He soon makes friends with Queequeg, that dude we've been alluding to, who is a described as a tattooed Polynesian harpooner, who ultimately, but indirectly, saves Ishmael's life. They both join the, the crew of the Pequod? Pequod. Pequod. Um, whose captain is Ahab, and he's described as a, quote, grand, ungodly, godlike man, which is a lot to unpack in one little description. Um, but basically, his sole mission in life is to get revenge on the white whale, Moby yep. Dick, uh, which is almost like this mythical creature that's kind of, like, personified by presenting it like the whale has battle knowledge and is, like, intentionally tormenting all of these sailors. Well, yeah, yes and no. Um, do you understand where the name Moby Dick came from? No. Okay, so Moby Dick is taken from a book. Uh, I can't remember exactly how to pronounce it, so I do apologize, but it's like Mobius is Sakai Dick or whatever. And it's it's a, it's supposed to represent um, a variant in the whale um, pods where there's there tends to be one male that will aggressively attack things that come near to protect all the others. And so Moby Dick, is, that's the name for this because this whale is so aggressive it attacks all these whalers and and ships protecting its kind and it survives. <laughs> yeah, so basically the, the lore or I guess factual lore among sailors is that Moby Dick will flee from ships and then abruptly turn back turn and smash them to smithereens. Yeah, it leads them away from its pod and then destroys them. Yeah. So during this this voyage, the the crew and the ship seems to be prone to its own bad luck too, which is like an omen of yeah. things to come. Um, like they lose a large whale carcass, uh, they get a lot of injuries and sick or uh, illnesses. Um, and then it's at that point where Queequeg uh, has a coffin built for him because he's sure he's gonna die. He's on death's door. Yeah, he's he's dead. So basically. he gets one of the carpenters. He's like, "Build me a coffin, man. I'm not gonna make it." Yeah. Um. And then finally, at the end, there's this epic. Well, and and then he he decides, oh, I still have something to live for on land, so I can't die <laughs> yeah, yet. Yeah, so Queequeg doesn't die yet. So he turns this coffin that was made specifically for him into his chest, where he can just store all of his stuff. Which you know, there's a metaphor in there somewhere. Yeah. So finally, it ends with this three day battle between the Pequod and Moby Dick, in which the ship is destroyed destroyed everybody on it dies ahab manages to harpoon the whale and is dragged down with him Mm -hmm. which that's some symbolism for why you shouldn't devote your life to trying to take someone else down for heroin (laughs) yeah right that too um and then (laughs) ishmael is the only survivor floating away on queequeg's coffin until a passing ship rescues him yeah so now you've basically read the book uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to it. I mean, Ahab is a very interesting character to read. Also sounds like an insufferable asshole. Yes and no. Um, and that's, that's the thing, like I was saying earlier, at one, at no point does Ahab ever have any lashings on his boat. And so, like, there are things that Herman puts into the story to humanize Ahab for the time that he's in. Um, at one point they say, they're like, well, is he a good is he a good man? And they're like, he is, he's, um, I think they say like, he's not a Christian, but he's a good man. And I'd rather be with a level-headed atheist than a moody Christian, something like that. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I totally would too. <laughs> you know, like, that is so bold for the times. Yeah. Too. And, like- and, and like, so like there's, they present Ahab 
in a fairly interesting way where he has a very obvious problem and starbuck the the main his main mate is like you're insane and i i made a mistake coming out here with you but everyone else is like no we love you man we're on it we're in it with you and to the very end starbuck is like dude you don't have to do this don't do this let's just turn around let's just go back and he's this voice of reason for ahab but ahab's you know he he's obsessed and right before the the final battle he's like he's almost level-headed and, and he's almost tempted to turn around because he's like i'm i i married this woman and the second i married her she became a widow because i've only spent one night in my bed since i married her like i am obsessed i know i'm obsessed but i have to do this because he took my leg and and he's so much better than me and then i have to destroy him for being better than me He's just a super interesting, a very interesting character. I like how Starbuck is like the one dude in the cult who sees it for what it is and is like trying to save everybody else. Yeah. Um, also, it totally doesn't matter to the story at all. But it was really interesting when I was listening to one of the lectures from a professor. Mm-hmm. Um, so Herman Melville is very inconsistent throughout all of Moby Dick with like, little facts about the ship including which leg ahab is missing oh really apparently it switches back and forth all throughout the book because it doesn't matter it it doesn't matter or he didn't care or or because ahab never lost his leg and he keeps forgetting which one to put the thing on (laughs) and he he does that thing where he puts his knee in first into his pants and so his leg is just kind of propped up behind him and then he just puts the the peg on there and everyone's like oh don't look at it too much or else we'll get lashed i like that explanation even better (laughs) but no apparently there are all sorts of inconsistencies about like the layout of the ship and stuff and i'm just like oh that's Probably because it's an amalgamation of different times. Of different different ships ships that he's been on and stuff. And I just, I think that's funny that like one of the greatest works of history. Literature. Has Um, all of these issues. We can, we can move on from Moby Dick, but there is one part that I really wanted to read. It struck me so hard, especially this week. I've been dealing with a lot of stuff at work. And, and the more that I thought about it, like I said earlier, whaling at that time was the way that people kept the lights on. It was how you had heat and energy in your home and and all kinds of things. And so in a way, what he's doing is a lot like what I'm doing with my life. I'm an electrician, right? Like I, I do, I work with electricity. I keep building safe by the systems that I build and I'm learning a lot and I'm an apprentice. I'm at the low end of the totem pole, right? So, so thank God you're Ishmael, not Ahab. (laughs) Reading, reading about Reading this book is very interesting to me because I connect really quickly with a simple sailor. And he goes and talks about why he goes as a simple. He could be a captain. He, he talks about it. He's like, I could be a cook. I could be a captain. I could be an officer. But that's too much responsibility. And I'm not going to pay for passage because I'd rather get paid to go explore than to pay. Right? And then he says, uh, what of it? Some old uh, – of if – some old hunks of the sea captain orders me to get a broom and sweep down the decks. What does that indignity amount to? Wade, I mean, in the scales of New Testament. Do you think the Archangel Gabriel thinks anything less of me because I promptly and respectfully obey that old hunks in that particular instant? Who ain't a slave? Tell me that. That hit me so hard. And I know it doesn't seem like it, but it... it hit. He's basically saying, look, in the New Testament, Jesus sacrificed himself. 
Jesus was beat to death. We've talked. I already talked about. It. I already did my sermon earlier, and and he did it with no pride. He did it for the sake of humanity. If you want to believe in the Bible, you don't have to. I'm not saying you have to. I'm just this you is his. Must. This is his thought process, right? He did this for the sake of humanity. He was willing to lay down his life. In the eyes of God, in the eyes of the archangels, in the eyes of all this religious shit, it's better for me to get abused and to lay down my own pride so that I can go out and see the world than to try and assert myself as something more than I really am. And then he follows that up with, who ain't a slave? Tell me that. Because every single one of us answer to somebody, whether it's a parent, whether it's a boss, whether it's a spouse or a kid, like if, if you have a kid, that's now your boss, basically. A God that you have, your own self. Sometimes you're a slave to your own self or an addiction. And it's just, in 1850, he wrote this line that's so prevalent still to this day. Who ain't a slave? Tell me that. I just, Amen. Man, I legitimately almost went out and just got that tattooed on me. Because I it hit me so hard. So that was that was the big thing that I got when I was reading Moby Dick. <laughs> no, I think that's Melville has like great lines like that. Yeah. And so I will bitch about him being super boring. But <laughs> in between all of the long tirades about shit that's just not interesting, he has those really like introspective lines that tell you so much about humanity then and now. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my end of uh, Moby Dick run. Okay. And uh, it's basically the end of his career. <laughs> and uh, that's it. All right. See you later, I everybody. Mean, he wrote some more things like um, the Piazza Tales, which are um, some shorter stories like Bartleby the Scrivener, which I actually read because it was a short story. And I like that one a lot. Would highly recommend. Do you? Yeah. That one's really interesting. The concept is like basically this Wall Street office where um, the main character hires Bartleby to be a clerk or whatever he's supposed to like copy stuff because yeah. we didn't have computers back then um and basically the whole line is bartleby being asked to do things and saying i'd prefer, I'd prefer not, not. not to yeah or, yeah so i i don't know don't you mean you won't no, no i'd prefer not I'd prefer not and it's just like i think it's short enough that it actually had i had more of an emotional connection with that one like i actually felt a little tense and like yeah i was dreading what was gonna happen yeah um because it didn't like drag on for so long so if you're looking to read some melville that is like easily digestible i do bartleby the scrivener or another and, and it's work. an interesting like it's not even about bartleby it's about the guy who's witnessing bartleby right and, and what he goes through watching this guy go i'd prefer not and that's all it is. It's just wearing him down. Yeah. It's crazy. It, that's a good one. So, I, yeah, I'm glad you like that one, too, because I was just like, you know what? I'm never going to make it through Moby Dick. Let me read Bartleby <laughs> the Scrivener. So, yeah, that one's really good, um, but not appreciated at the time. Um, and he got really discouraged with the reaction to his writing. He was realizing he wasn't going to be able to su- support his family on this. Right. Um, so in the late 50s, he took up lecturing as a way to make some money. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, in the 60s, he kind of traveled around to a lot of different places including american civil war battlefields and wrote dozens of poems about it yeah he started getting super into poems. yeah but even his poems didn't do well commercially like right. nobody appreciated them at the time um so then finally in 1866 he kind of ditches the writing lifestyle and becomes a customs inspector for a port in uh new york city uh and he spent basically the rest of his career about 19 years doing that mm-hmm. um 
He, I thought it was interesting. It was noted that he had a reputation for honesty in a notoriously corrupt uh, institution. So yeah, man. Go Melville, I guess. Yeah. Um, but he was. I think that he he legitimately was a, a good Christian guy. I really do. Um, I, I think from from looking at his life and the way that he treated people, the way that he wrote about people, like he didn't write like. Anytime he talks about someone being a savage in his books, it's almost a dig at people who really talk that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's using like the terms of the time, but I don't think he actually believed it. I I think he was almost making fun of those people. Like, yeah, this guy's a savage. You know what I mean? Like, he there's almost that implied italicized or quote air quotes. quotes of like, yeah, he's a savage, whatever. But you know, and that gets the point across to the reader. But to him, he's like. That's just, they're just people, you know, and, and Moby Dick, his best friend is a savage, you know? And and so I, I, I view him as a really good person. I really do. Um, and you know, there is no proof that he cheated on his wife with another woman or man. Um, and I, I think he just really liked people and he liked to hang out. And that's something that I really admire about him. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's kind of sad how his career went. You know, yeah. you have we had our last author that we did was Hemingway. Yeah. And he was super respected in his time. Yeah. And now you've got Melville who like. People had, just kind of didn't care towards the end. They didn't care what he was doing. He had like a little bit of early success and then nothing after that. So yeah. um, toward the late 60s, I think uh, he started getting short tempered because he was just exhausted he was in a lot of physical pain. He's getting older, yeah. like super old for the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was drinking a lot. And so at this time he started like having all of these unpredictable mood swings and yeah. being awful to his family and their servants. Um, and I think at one point his wife was like trying to figure out how to leave him. She was right. like plotting with her brother and then eventually decided against it because divorce back then was it's a big a deal. Big deal. Yeah. She would probably lose it's the kids. Sin. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's how bad his treatment of I say it's a sin getting. for that time. I'm not saying it's a sin. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying that. <laughs> You're not condemning them. I don't want people to come at me like, how dare you? It doesn't. No, that's why Lizzie didn't leave him was because yeah. of all of that. So, and then in 1867, his oldest son died at 18. Yeah. So I saw that it was like not determined whether or not it was suicide or not. It was a gunshot wound. To the And head. there's like, to the head. So there's some disagreement between historians like was it an accident was he cleaning the gun mm. was it on purpose uh, did your author have a definitive answer almost nothing at all i mean at least nothing that that i i listened to or heard she just talked about it and kind of moved on mm. yeah because so- she had to start talking about Clarel, his work that apparently is highly homo homoerotic oh my god i love how your author just spent the whole she was upset like you guys think that i get obsessed about this She's obsessed, man. Oh, man. So so either way, he loses his son, who's 18 years old, which is not great for someone who's already having a tough time. Right. Um. So, yeah. So just the end of his life seemed very depressing. Yeah. Um. And then his last work that he was in the process of writing when he died was the manuscript of Billy Budd, which is a story about a sailor falsely accused of mutiny. Um, and he was writing that when he died of a heart attack on September 28th, 1891. Mm-hmm. And by the time he died, he was basically completely forgotten. He hadn't published anything in more than 30 years mm-hmm. and only one obituary bothered yeah. to talk about the fact that he died. 62 years old. Did I do my math right? 
76, 72 years 72. old. 72. So he lived a long it time. Was, that was a, he was old, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, for that time especially. And it's just, like, the last, like, thing that he really published was in the 50s. So. Yeah. Well, it, and so, like I mentioned, Clarell was his, you know, Moby Dick has become what we know him for. Um, Clarell was what he wanted to be known for. It was an epic poem, um, I think, just as long as Moby Dick. Um, I think it's the longest English epic poem ever written. Um, and it's about, he went, he at some point in his life, he went to Jerusalem and he visited, you know, all these places and, and the holy city and all of that. He basically went on a, on a pilgrimage. And, um, and so this was a book about that or it was a poem. It was a story about that and meeting another man who was also, you know, doing the same thing. And so when my biographer got into it, she just basically, she didn't go into his philosophical or religious views at all, or what he was going through in his pilgrimage or writing this, which that's what I want to listen to. If, if someone's going to sit down and write a story about their faith, I want to hear what that is. I want to know what they, where they started and where they ended because that's what I identify with. She just spent t- time talking about, oh, this character represented Hawthorne and this character represented him and they're like flirting back and forth and, you know, he he wants to do all this stuff with them and I'm like, give it a rest, lady. Hawthorne's dead. Elizabeth Hardwick <laughs> is just like a sex-crazed maniac. Yeah, We're going to get hate mail from her. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Sorry, lady. That's just what I picked up. You know, I, I she might have had more going on, but that's just what I picked up. So, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, when he dies, like he's got unfinished work. The the thing that he that he will be known for is critically a failure. Mm-hmm. Like he nobody cares about it at all. And it's not for like until like the 1920s that people care. Right. Probably. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that he died in obscurity is part of the reason we don't have many of his uh, art like effects and stuff like those letters from Hawthorne that he might have gotten. Like nobody cared about preserving yeah. his stuff. <laughs> Right. Because he was a nobody. And it's sad because he wasn't a nobody. He was a good guy who like he lived a crazy life and he accepted people for who they were. Um, And he, he tried to do right by his family. Like he he played all sides and he wrote some crazy good books. Yeah. From what I've learned, uh, I I think Melville is one of the least problematic authors we've talked about. Sure. Like one of the most decent humans. I agree. Yeah. C.S. Lewis was a good guy too. Oh, but one, he had he had those fetishes. So <laughs> the one fetish that he did for like college, and then the rest of his life is totally fine. He's just marred by it. It's uh, yeah, from us. Thanks us for ruining C.S. Lewis. No, C.S. Lewis to me is probably one of the better people. I think he was just socially weird. Um, Herman Melville is the opposite. He's socially graceful. He loved to be around people. Like mm-hmm. I said, that's what I admire from from hearing his story. The fact that he like. Ernest uh, Hemingway was a dick. He liked people. Yeah, he was he social, was but he was terrible to, to his friends. Herman was, again, the opposite. He liked people and he liked to hang out with people. And I think he just was one of those, one of the pals, one of the guys. And I think it's so cool that, that you can, when I read this in eighth grade, I never comprehended any of that because you don't. You just read about a big giant whale. And <laughs> and giggle about the name. <laughs> which Moby. I <laughs> Yeah, that's the part. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I think it's a little sad, to be honest, the fact that he wasn't acknowledged for 
his genius. Yeah. Somebody up in heaven, just give Melville a nice hug. (laughs) Sorry, man. (laughs) Yo, dude, I just I just listened to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, man, you had it hard. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of which, everybody in heaven should be listening to our podcast. Yeah, if you're up in heaven, give us a rating and review, please. (laughs) (laughs) Especially on Apple. (laughs) Really helps, guys. Uh, so that was Herman Melville, uh, a story of an adventurer who died very old and with some depressing, <laughs> uh, a depressing little outro. Speaking of outros. Woo, hit it. Oh, I don't have it open. <laughs> <laughs> uh, seriously, I would recommend if you guys are looking for a book, uh, go, there's abridged versions of Moby Dick and it is worth checking out. Um, it's, it's an interesting story. The Again, abridged. <laughs> yeah. Three hours. I could not find the abridged version, so I was- I found it on Libro.fm. They don't pay us, Tyler. Oh, don't give sorry. them advertising. Not yet they don't. Um, but I'm sure you can find it. Yes. At somewhere. Um, I think I typed it in, too. Like, <laughs> abridged. Moby Dick, abridged. Yeah, I need the kids' version. <laughs> um, or, yeah, uh, go check out um, Billy Budd or Bartle. Bartleby, Bartleby the yeah. Scrivener. That's that's my yeah. favorite because it's weird. Um, so I would I would definitely check those out. Nice. Okay. Uh, do we do a teaser for our next episode? Oh yeah, yeah. man. We're talking about motherfucking. No, I'm not gonna say it like that because I don't want to disrespect him. <laughs> We're. <laughs> I don't think he'd be offended. Also dead. Yeah, he is also dead. That's why we're going to talk about him. We're talking about Stan Lee, guys. Woo! So we're so in case you guys didn't catch it, over the summer we're doing this uh, kind of educational school books like Herman Melville and Moby Dick, and then we're going to be doing some Beach Reads Fun Times uh, books. And Hannah let me uh, choose the first one, and <laughs> I said comic books and she's like great which ones and then i looked at her dumbfounded because i was like i don't know all of them uh and then i made my up my mind on hellboy but then we decided to put hellboy to something else and then i was like oh noelle stevenson she's cool and so i made hannah read a book by her but then she's still alive and she's still young so it's hard to do biographies on people who are alive yeah like all we could do is just gush about her and i don't want to do that like it's just kind of weird um, so, I mean, we, we might talk about her someday, but not right now. Uh, and, and then I was, I slapped myself on the head cause I'm like, why didn't I think about Stan Lee the literally the first time? Stan Lee. Uh, we're going to talk about Stan Lee, writer of comic books and novels and, uh, just all around interesting and cool guy. Um, and we'll probably, I have a comic book version of his life. Which is so cool. And I've told Hannah that she can take a break from reading for this next episode and she can just watch some documentaries about him. And and I'm and I'm specific about that because I think there are so many creative people that are inspired by him and there's got to be really good documentaries out there. Um, like, I, I know Kevin Smith has to have one. Kevin Smith is a, an interesting guy on his own. So... Um, we'll be talking about Stan Lee. I'm really looking forward to that one. Yeah, it's it's it'll be fun. Uh, so yeah. In the meantime, Tyler, where can they find us? Uh, you guys can find us on Instagram at Lewis and Lovecraft. Uh, you can go to our website, lewisandlovecraft.com, facebook.com slash Lewis and Lovecraft. And if you guys ever have anything that you want to just send us, 
fan mail. We don't deserve <laughs> fan mail. If you want to tell us how wrong we are. <laughs> or suggestions for suggestions. Uh, future episodes. If you want to send in a short story or anything that you want us to read. Um, or a book review that you have. If you want to do a book review of something that we've done, dude, we want to hear that. We, I would love to hear what you guys think of stuff. Send it in to lewisandlovecraft at gmail.com. And as always, we want to thank Jake Bassett for our amazing intro music. Um, if you want to listen to more of his stuff, he has all sorts of genres, all sorts of songs on soundcloud.com slash Jake Bassett. Jake Bassett. B as in boy, A-S-S-E-N. E-N. Don't forget to subscribe. Uh, we are on every single platform. I've tried very hard to make sure we're everywhere. So find us on Podbean, on um, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, all of that. Go hit just hit, just hit the little subscribe button right there. Just, you're looking at your phone right now. Just hit it. Follow us. Don't miss a single episode. And uh, while you're there, if, if the platform allows, rate and review us, especially on iTunes. Um, we, we like those. We like those five-star reviews. Four stars are acceptable. Three and below will not be tolerated. So. <laughs> will not be tolerated. We've had a bad review. We've moved past it. We've we've had to console each other and just make sure we got through it. And we just don't think about that jerk anymore. We just anymore. don't think about it every single day, every time I go onto iTunes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we definitely appreciate any reviews. It is the it's the way that new new people can know what they're getting into if they're interested in our show. If you think that we're doing a good job, we're not asking for money. We're asking for reviews. We're not asking for money right now. <laughs> but we are asking that you tell other people about our show too. Yeah, we are. To tell That's other it. people, just, yeah, just, just tell just other tell people. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great way to, to help spread the word is to tell people about our show. If you see strangers reading a book, be like, hey, you know who talks about books? Hannah and Tyler. Hannah and Tyler from Between Lewis and Lovecraft. Yeah, I'm um, sure strangers would love to hear from you. <laughs> do you have Do you have an out? An I don't out? have an you outro because I don't know that much about Stan Lee yet. <laughs> oh, uh, I'll try and do my best Stan Lee impression. Um, <clears throat> well, he's, he's known for saying one thing at least. Excelsior! Oh, I should have known that! Yeah. Oh, okay.